Well, good morning, everybody. But our text this morning is Ephesians 4 and verse 30. So please, could you turn there now? Now, whilst I'm saying we're going to be in verse 30 today, I'm really doing that principally for a focus point because we're going to be kind of drawing in verses from both sides of it. And I'm also going to ask you to be a little bit patient, perhaps more patient than normal, um, with the structure of my sermon because I'm going to be wandering around a little bit and it might look as though I've forgotten what we started talking about, but I do promise that in the end, I hope it will all make sense. Okay, I'm going to start reading from verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who steal, who, who stole, steal no longer, but rather let him labour, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And this is our text for today. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. May God bless us with the understanding of what we have read today. So our text about not grieving the Holy Spirit of God might remind you of um, another text that was given by Jesus in Matthew 12, 31. It's quite similar. And I'd like to, to get this out of the way to start off with. And it reads, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, Jesus and Paul are not talking about the same thing. Blasphemy is a quite different word, and it's characterized by a rebellious and deep and stubborn rejection of the Holy Spirit, which in fact enjoys insulting him. And all this despite knowing what is the truth. And I came across this this phrase when I was um, studying for the sermon. And it said this, Blasphemy against the Spirit is not unforgivable because of something done unintentionally in the past, but because of something being done deliberately and unrelentingly in the present. So how would we know if we are in this space? It's simple. Does the idea of such behavior, behavior worry and appall you? Does it? Well, good, because then you aren't committing the sin. Since if you were committing blasphemy, then you wouldn't be worried or you wouldn't be afraid. So we can understand that Paul is actually talking about something quite different here in Ephesians. And the first reason that we can see that is so is because of context. This verse that we're looking at in Ephesians starts with the word and. And that means that it's linked to the one before it, which hopefully you remember from the last sermon is about not using rotten speech. And then immediately after this instruction, he goes on to talk about some other kinds of behavior by which we can cause the Holy Spirit to grieve. And next, although there is definitely a message to non-believers here in the practical advice that Paul has started to deliver in this part of the book, his principal thrust is obviously towards those who are in Christ. And this is clear from all the things that he has written previously about citizenship in heaven, 
and the structure of the church and so on, isn't it? So he can't be talking about those who violently turn their backs on everything holy. So it's safe to put aside any thoughts of a link between blasphemy in Matthew and grief here in Ephesians and set our sights on understanding what is meant by not grieving the Holy Spirit. Before we go on to talk about today's scripture, let's investigate the basics of who the Holy Spirit is because this will have an effect on us knowing whether grieving him is a small thing to think about or something more serious. And to do so, we're going to need a little bit of fundamental theology, starting with the character of God, because the most important thing about the Holy Spirit is that he is holy God, yet not all of God. Is that confusing? Yes, yes, good. That means you're still listening. As Baptists, in common with most other people claiming the name Christian, we believe in a thing called the Trinity of God. And by that word Trinity we understand, well, as best as such a thing can be understood, that God is three persons and yet one God. One and three and three and one. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And how does this work? Well, I'm going to have to ask you to take most of what I say in explanation on faith because a full discussion with proofs would take a very great deal of time And I think you'd find that a recording of it would be very helpful the next time you can't get to sleep. So, here we go, briefly. The first bit of trouble that we have is that that word Trinity just can't be found anywhere in Scripture. And that said, the concept of the Trinity, which based on sound understanding from Scripture, stands with great authority since it is agreed upon by every major branch of Christianity. And we can understand this to mean that it's been well tested that despite all arguments to the contrary, the idea has passed through a great many inquiring and penetrating minds over a very long period, several thousand years in fact. And that authority is further reinforced by the recognition that it just isn't possible to understand what Scripture says about who God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are as persons without the foundation of the Trinity. Any other explanation founders in the way that it contradicts other basic theological principles. So the first thing we can know about the Holy Spirit is that as part of the Trinity, in nature, he is fully God and there is only one God, but we also believe that he has a special and distinct character compared to the Father and the Son. Okay. At this point, I want to ask you a searching question. How much recognition do you personally give to the Trinity? In recent years, a lot of criticism has been poured out on this concept. And a lot of it is so complicated that it's almost impossible to understand. So, for a lot of Christians, the whole thing has just been put away in that too hard basket. And although we rightly and deeply feel the need to have a relationship with God, we want to serve Him and we want to worship Him, but we can't really figure out which part and when because of all the Christianese. And so, whilst we might go to a church that possibly even has the word Trinity in its name, we may sing about and hear about the Trinity or roll out the right answers about it if we're asked, the reality is that our everyday relationship with God has become Unitarian. And what I mean by that is we no longer address God as Father, Son or Holy Spirit, recognizing their individual characters and roles. We just plain talk to to God. We engage with him just as one being. Now, I'd be very hesitant about condemning such a viewpoint with thunder from the pulpit as sin. I understand, because to be very honest, I see bits of this kind of behaviour in myself. So, is this sin? 
I don't know, honestly. But there is a very real problem with this approach and that is the matter of debt. Because by relating to God in this way, we miss out on so much. We only see a flat image of Him. You know, as though we were looking at a picture of Him in a magazine page instead of the three-dimensional and substantial, the real power of the real but different three persons of the Trinity. Friends, that's not what we need. Life is full of difficulties and great joy and celebration too. And we will certainly want the whole person of God to share them with us. I can say that I yearn for a God that I can talk to, not just in the cool of the evening, but at any time. Not a glossy picture in a glossy magazine on a shiny coffee table. Isn't that what you yearn for too, that relationship? Well, none of us will ever relieve that ache unless we come to know the fullness of the Trinity. So, can I ask you, please, to think about how you personally relate to the Trinity on a day-to-day basis, where and as you live. And if you find yourself with just that one kind of God, then make it a priority to learn some more about the three-in-one so that you can fully engage with Him as He has always wanted. And if you need some suggestions as to where to look, well, come and talk to me or one of the other elders. But I can very highly recommend a book by a gentleman called Wayne Grudem. It's on biblical theology. It's very thick and looks very scary. Sarah, it's easy to read, isn't it? It's understandable. And we do need to know about these things. Now, I started off this question earlier with the statement that the Holy Spirit has a special and distinct character compared to the Father and Son. Well, what does that look like? Actually, it's a really big question to answer and certainly a great deal more than we have time for today. So when I did a very quick search in my theology software on this topic of personality of the Holy Spirit, the very first list that popped up had no less than 23 separate aspects with supporting scriptures. And you'll be pleased to know that today we're only going to go through 21 of them. No, no. I just picked three because they will mesh with what we need to understand from our text in Ephesians today. The first is comfort. An important aspect of the Holy Spirit's personality is that he is a, and we can also rightly say, the comforter with a capital C. And one passage that describes this is in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The Greek word used here is parakesis and it refers to calling to one side or one's aid which can be for the purpose of providing solace, comfort, consolation, exhortation and encouragement. And in doing a little word study on this Greek word there was a happy discovery which was rather than me trying to think up a a decent and understandable explanation of the Spirit as comforter, I could just steal it from somebody else. And in this case, Mr. Spurgeon. And I think we can all rest on the fact that he does a better job than I could. So, let me read it to you. This is what he says about the Holy Spirit as comforter. The Holy Spirit, during the present dispensation, is revealed to us as the comforter. It is the Spirit's business to console and cheer the hearts of God's people. He does convince of sin. He does illuminate and instruct, but still the main part of his business lies in making glad the hearts of the renewed, in confirming the weak, and lifting up all those that be bowed down. Whatever the Holy Ghost may not be, he is evermore the comforter of the church. And this age is peculiarly the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, in which Christ cheers us not by his personal presence, as he shall do by and by, but by the indwelling and constant abiding of the Holy Ghost, the comforter. Now mark you, 
as the Holy Spirit is the comforter, Christ is the comfort. The Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is the consolation. If I may use the figure, the Holy Spirit is the physician, but Christ is the medicine. He heals the wound, but it is applying the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ointment of Christ's name and grace. He takes not his own things, but the things of Christ. We are not consoled today by new revelations, but by the old revelation, explained, enforced, and lit up with new splendor by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. If we give to the Holy Spirit the Greek name of Paraclete, as we sometimes do, then our heart confers on our blessed Lord Jesus the title of the Paraclesis. If one be the Comforter, the other is the Comfort. In a little while, most of us will go through to the hall and have some tea or coffee and talk to our friends. If I were to come up to you at that time and ask you how you were, I'm betting that almost exclusively would be the answer, I'm fine. However, I'm also betting that if I got you alone and pressed a little harder for the truth, I'd find that there was at least one thing distressing you. Now, for the purposes of this sermon, I'm not particularly interested in the how are you, I'm fine, little routine that we have, although I am moved to ask why we all play this charade. But what I am very interested in right now is pointing out the most amazing truth. And that is that we may be dying inside and for whatever reason not be prepared to share this with another human being. We might be desperate and despairing, but we do not have to bear these things alone. Because if we have been saved by Jesus, then we do definitely have God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit to hear us and to heal us. I want to say that again. We do definitely have God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit to hear us, heal us. Isn't that amazing? Whilst I certainly love and value my friends and family, I know that they can never approach the worth of the Holy Spirit as comforter because they can never know my heart as he does. They do not have the wisdom to decide on how to act as he does and they do not have the power to act as he does. And this is the great blessing and privilege we have as children of God. Seriously, what can be better? The ability of humans to help, comparatively speaking, is somewhere down here, near, near the floor. But the power of the Holy Spirit is its up in the clouds. I mean, it's even in the Milky Way. It's that much bigger. But too often we do not understand this. And because we do not understand it, we do not appreciate it. And because we do not appreciate it, we do not take hold of it. Friends, take hold of it. God, the Holy Spirit, is your comforter. Speak to Him. Praise Him. Thank Him. Draw near to Him and your life will never be the same again. Next, let's talk about another aspect of the Spirit's personality, which is as guide. John 16:13 tells us, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. When we read of the Holy Spirit being a guide here, we shouldn't understand it as Him being some kind of super oracle, or perhaps a fellow with heavy boots and a rope around one shoulder who can be consulted on which course of action to take in any circumstance. For example, which numbers will be the best ones to pick for Big Wednesday. Now the word guide here, it literally means a guide on the way. And the way, of course, is the journey of sanctification, not the way to becoming wealthy or successful. And the thing is that although knowing where to buy a house or which job to take can seem overwhelmingly important in this life, when we stop to think about it, by comparison, 
a thing that's inevitably going to be left behind and which therefore has no eternal consequence must be much less important than those things that will have value in eternity. And we build such eternal value as we work with God to become more like Christ in our daily life here on earth. Since this is very important work, we can be grateful that, once again, we have not been left just to get on with it by ourselves as best we can. Praise God that he himself has taken up the task of helping us through it all. And his help sets aside all doubt because, as this verse says, the Spirit is both the Spirit of truth and he leads us in the truth. One of the basic aspects of God is truth. He defines it and he himself is absolutely true. And since this is so, everything he says and does is absolutely reliable and can be depended on. Do you want to know if something is true or false? Well, forget about any earthly standard of morality. Compare it to God. Compare it to the truth. Because he, and only he, is the defining standard. What value could we place on having unfettered access to such quality and accuracy on the way of sanctification? we have a tremendous amount to be grateful for in this gift alone, never mind the many, many other blessings that we enjoy. The final aspect of the Holy Spirit that we'll look at today is that he sanctifies us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When we read here that we are sanctified, it means that we are set apart for God. We are given the inward ability in the Spirit's power to live a righteous life outwardly. Before a person is saved, they have no holy nature and no capacity for holy living. But in Christ, we are given a new nature and can live out the new kind of life. Sin's total domination is broken and it's replaced by this wonderful life of holiness. Right. At this point, you have heard about 3,000 words from my lips. So, all you might be hearing is a sort of a buzzing noise. Anybody got that? And then you might have missed out on a few really quite remarkable facts, such as, we have been made holy. We have the power through the Spirit to live a righteous life. Sin's power is broken. Hallelujah. What might we say to that? What would we say in response to receiving such gracious and amazing gifts? I hope that it would be a resounding hallelujah. Praise the Lord Jesus. Praise the Father but also praise the Holy Spirit who is the one who works so patiently and lovingly with us in the lifelong work of sanctification. By now, I hope that we have firmly grasped that our relationship with the Holy Spirit is vitally important because as an equal member of the Trinity, He is important. That His work is comprehensive and it affects every part of our lives here on earth and that it also has eternal significance and consequence. And that should be clear to us just from the three personality traits that we've looked at today. And remember, I've said just in that one list, there was 23. His total work then is so much greater than we can comprehend or understand. But we cannot wrap things up just here, although I do want you to hold the thought of that importance in your mind, because we still need to go on and look at our 
verse for today, don't we? We haven't spoken much about it at all. And as I warned you at the beginning, we've deliberately gone in a different direction. So far I've been building up a body of evidence and approaching things from a bit of an angle. And now to confuse you even more, I want to talk about the last part of Ephesians 4.30 before the first part. So, not only does the Spirit comfort, guide and sanctify us, but as Paul says here in verse 30, He seals us against the day of redemption. Given what we might think about today in modern terms about seals, we might be wondering how the Holy Spirit could be compared to some kind of rubber ring. So we must understand that word seal in the context of the time that it was written. An image that the Ephesians who read this letter would have had was of a process where some sort of engraved object was used to make a mark on something to show who owned it. And some of the meanings that such a mark would have had at the time included a finished transaction, meaning there were no more terms to be negotiated, payments had been made in full, and the goods are now in their proper ownership. And of course, in the case of Christians, we know that Christ has made the full and final compensation for our sin, and our ownership has passed irrevocably from Satan to Christ. So it's very appropriate that we should carry a seal, God's seal. Secondly, a seal was a mark of ownership. For example, people who bought timber in the forest of Asia Minor would select trees, which then be cut down, they were stamped with a buyer's seal, and they floated them down downstream. So when they got to the port at Ephesus, they could be sorted out. This one belongs to Bob, and this one belongs to Bill, and so on. As we read here, the Holy Spirit stamps us with his seal, indicating his ownership, so that it is clear that we only belong to God. Thirdly, a seal was a bond of security. Both Daniel's lion's den and Christ's tomb were sealed by royal decree. And when we come to Christ, we too are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which implies security. And fourthly, a seal was an imprint of authenticity or identity. In ancient times, everyone had a unique seal, which when you press it into some wax, said, that's me. Since we carry God's seal, we are authenticated as his children. So these are the blessings of the Holy Spirit sealing. We can be absolutely certain that God's promise of redemption has been fulfilled. And the tense of the word sealed in the Greek tells us that it is something that has been done. It is a past and a completed action. It's a done deal. Therefore, therefore we are now not our own or Satan's, but we are children of Almighty God the Creator with the guarantee of eternal security that only He can give. And in a spiritual sense, to prove that, we carry an unmistakable and indelible mark that identifies us as one of His. Excuse me for a moment, I need to wet my throat. So, having that seal proves that God is not going to go back and change His mind, ever. And I think that's another place for a hallelujah. Now, another question. Is everyone here alive? Good. Since we are alive, hopefully we can all see the enormous value of this seal while we are so. However, how much more so will it be on the day of redemption? And this is an interesting phrase because it's the only place that we'll actually find Paul using it. But he is most certainly talking about that great and glorious future day when Christ returns to take his people home. He will be looking for that seal at the door. And you can absolutely bet that no one who does not have it will be allowed in. There is not going to be any sneaking in the back door, no matter how many amount of good works you've done, and there are no pleas possible, no matter how eloquent, because only that specific mark that was bought by the blood of Jesus, a 
and made by the Spirit will identify us and give us entry. So I have to ask, do you have the certainty of that seal on your heart today? Because if not, then know that you will be left outside. That will be a sad and terrible thing. Okay, I've spent a lot of time explaining the blessings of having the Holy Spirit living in us, and I haven't said much about the first part of our text, about grieving Him. Why? Well, simply because I wanted to very clearly demonstrate why we shouldn't grieve Him. And that is not because we are afraid of Him, but because we are deeply convicted of His gracious love and concern and continuous work for us. As we have learned today, He does comfort us, and He does guide us, and He does sanctify and seal us, and many, many other things too. Grieving the Holy Spirit with this understanding is like winning Big Wednesday with all the trimmings. Then on Thursday, deliberately phoning a Nigerian scammer with your bank and credit card details, sinking the boat, crashing the car, and then setting the batch on fire. It would be foolish and ungrateful. I'm sure that we wouldn't want to be seen to be foolish and ungrateful. Therefore, we would need to know how and when we grieve the Spirit so that we won't be doing it. So, is it some special sin or omission? Is his grief reserved perhaps only for the worst of sinners? Unfortunately not. We grieve him every time we sin. It's that simple. And what we cause him is deep emotional pain and distress. That's the meaning of the word used. And this is why, as we saw when we read this section at the beginning of the sermon, that this verse sits smack in the middle of the section counselling against lying and anger and stealing and rotten speech and so on. They are all sins, we all do them, and they all grieve the Spirit. Many years ago, when I worked in the corporate world, the multinational I worked for appointed a new chief executive. And as the saying goes, a new broom sweeps clean. And this particular broom decided to make its mark by completely changing the way that the company was structured from top to bottom. I won't bore you with the details, but the most immediate effect for me was that my boss was no longer in an office down the hallway, but he was now in Johannesburg, 1,200 k's away. And when we got the news, of course, it was a scary moment, because what was this man going to do with his broom? It turned out that this gentleman was the most inspirational man that I have ever worked for. For sure, he demanded hard work, but you knew that he would also be prepared to work hard for you, that he would fight for you, and indeed, he proved it on many occasions. And I worked longer and harder for this man than I have ever worked for before. Not because I was afraid of him, but just because I didn't want to disappoint him. I would say it wouldn't be unreasonable to put it in the terms that I didn't want to grieve him. And so it should be with us and the Holy Spirit. We do know what the wrong things are, and we do know what the right things are. So, let's try with all of our might, and of course, always reaching out for the Spirit's steady hand to help us, thanking and recognizing Him to live our lives like Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us Your Spirit. Thank You for not leaving us alone, for being so close to us. Forgive us, Holy Spirit, that often we do not address You. We do not give You the thanks that You deserve for being so close to us and for all the help that You give us. I pray that that time would be at an end, that we would embrace You 
and work harder with you to become more and more like Christ every day. For God's glory, in Jesus' name we pray.